Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I am the Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Good morning, everybody. We have an amazing show today. Crystal, Indeed what do we, we have do, for everybody? Because Ryan Grimm is in the house. Um, and he did us the kindness of making some big news yesterday in the State Department briefing, asking some fantastic questions and getting some absolutely horrific answers. So we will break that down for you. Also got Dr. Trita Parsi um, coming in to break down the escalating risks of a wider war. This is something we've been tracking from the beginning, and uh, it has never been as fraught and as dangerous as right now. Bernie Sanders finally coming out strong on Israel. We will tell you about his shift. We've got new details of Biden's political trouble and how they plan to try to get out of it. And the long-awaited uh, Epstein docs released, unsealed. We've got some of them. Court records unsealed. And uh, I would just say there's some some powerful names. Bill Clinton comes up quite a bit. Donald Trump is there, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing like that we didn't already know, right. I would say, but still kind of shocking. We also got a really interesting response from Alan Dershowitz yes. that we'll play for you as well. Um, Wall Street also with a new strategy to become America's landlord. We'll break that down for you, and I have a look at how Gaza is entering an outright famine and what that means for uh, for our country and certainly for the people there in Gaza. But we wanted to go ahead and start with Ryan in that State Department hearing asking Matthew Miller about the um, increasingly common remarks that are being made by high-level Israeli officials calling for ethnic cleansing of Gazans out of the Gaza Strip. Let's take a listen to that. Pick up on your response to uh, Smotrich and Ben Gavir yesterday. You and Linda Thomas-Greenfield both you know, had similar statements. Uh, you both said in your statements, 
quote, there should be no mass displacement of Palestinians from Gaza. Given that you both had the same word for word, statement, it seems like there was thought put into that. Why, why use the word should there? There should be no mass displacement. Would you be willing to make a more definitive comment? Like a, there must. There, there must not be. Yeah. No, there. And then I, to get to Ben Gavir's response, that's which I'm sure you saw, he posted on Twitter, with all due respect, we are not another star on the American flag. United States is our best friend, but first of all, we will do what is best for the state of Israel. The emigration of hundreds of thousands from Gaza will allow the residents of the enclave or the envelope to return home and live in safety and, protect, and to protect the IDF soldiers. Any response to Ben Gavir's public response to you? So certainly Israel is a sovereign country that does make its own decisions. There is no dispute about that. Uh, the point of our conf- of, of the statement that I made yesterday was that the comments that Ben Gavir and Minister Smotrich have made are in direct contradiction of Israeli government policy, as has been re- represented to us by multiple Israeli government officials, including the prime minister himself. Um, so uh, I'm not surprised that he continues to double down and make those statements. Um, but they are not only in contradiction with uh, uh United States policy and what we think is in the best interests of the Israeli people, the Palestinian people, the broader region, and ultimately stability in the world. But they are in direct contradiction of his own government's policy. uh, And we believe those statements should stop. Direct contradiction of Israeli government policy. Ryan, what do you make of that response? Like the very end where he said, we believe those statements should stop. It's like, because you're putting us in a really difficult position when you keep saying the quiet part out loud. Right. It's difficult to say that top ministers in a government are contradicting the government's policy. Right, because they are the government. They are the government. Now, (laughs) he's right that there is a higher figure in the government, and that is Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. But as Netanyahu, just speaking fairly recently, saying we're not rejecting that possibility, and the possibility is, quote, unquote, you know, scenario of surrender and deportation, uh, there are claims to be made for and against it. In my uh, article at The Intercept that I posted last night, I, I, I have a, a quote from Netanyahu from fairly recently where he says, regarding voluntary emigration, I have no problem with that. Our problem is not allowing the exit, but a lack of countries that are ready to take Palestinians in. And we are working on it. This is the direction we are going in, which seems to be in line with what Smotrich and That's Ben right. Kabir are saying. That's right. And in line, by the way, with, according to polling, what the Israeli public mm-hmm. wants and is open to. And by the way, I don't know if you guys remember this, all the way back, you know, in the early days after October 7th, Tony Blinken went to Israel. This is when he went and said, I'm here as mm-hmm. a Jewish person, um, first and foremost. And he made comments at the time pushing back on the idea of setting up some sort of a tent city, saying, I spoke with Sisi and this is completely off the table. But it was a tell that the Israeli government was already pushing in this direction of expelling Palestinians out of the Gaza Strip. We know because, you know, we've covered all of these pieces extensively here. There was a report that came out from a government ministry saying, hey, here's our options for the day after. The one we prefer is pushing everybody out into the Sinai Desert. We know we have reports that Netanyahu has tasked one of his senior advisors with, quote unquote, coming up with plans to thin out the Gaza population. We know there's a plan that's been floated here in the U.S. with some bipartisan support to use aid dollars, our aid dollars, to pressure regional countries to accept refugees out of the Gaza Strip. So to say that it is not, that it's a direct contradiction of Israeli government policy is just It's not even inaccurate. It's just a lie. And put the second element up here. I mean, you get pieces like this 
almost literally every day. This is the Times of Israel reporting Israeli officials are in talks with Congo and other African countries on taking in Gaza immigrants. Let me read a little bit of this. Their Hebrew sister site reported that Israeli officials have held clandestine talks with the African nation of Congo and several others for potential acceptance of Gaza immigrants. Congo will be willing to take in migrants and we are in talks with others, a senior source in the security cabinet um, told that outlet. They also quote Intelligence Minister Gila Gamlail saying at the Knesset yesterday, at the end of the war, Hamas will, will collapse. There are no municipal authorities. The civilian population will be entirely dependent on humanitarian aid. There will be no work and 60% of Gaza's agricultural land will become security buffer zones. And this is the other piece, Ryan, that has been laid out very clearly because in that original government ministry plan that I think was sort of like strategically or tactically released as a trial balloon, they laid out how they would do it. They said, basically, we'll destroy Gaza and then we'll make it the quote-unquote humanitarian. That's right, start in the north and then we'll proceed from there and we'll make it the humanitarian option so that we put pressure on U.S. and other countries of like, well, they're either going to starve and get bombed to death or they can be allowed to quote-unquote voluntarily migrate out of the Strip. And the, the best argument that I've, the best counter argument that I've seen, and since Sagar's not here, I'll try to make a counter argument okay. here. <laughs> you would say that there's a war going on and you have to displace the population so that the population is not dying under the reign of, of these bombs. And in fact, after my question, uh, eight, the Associated Press reporter pressed uh, Matt Miller on this. Well, you said you're against the displacement of millions of Palestinians. There's already been displacement. They've already been displaced. And he said, well, that's different. We're, they're getting out of harm's way because of the battle. Okay, let's say that, that, of course, yes, you don't want civilians killed. There was another option that did not involve kicking them into the Sinai Desert, and that is the Negev, the desert that is just on the other side of the Gaza fence. There was nothing stopping Israel from building a tent city, a, a refugee camp, just a few miles away from Gaza and saying, look, come into Israeli territory here. We've got, you know, you can, they can heavily guard it. It's not as if they're going to, you know, go from there into Jerusalem or, or Tel Aviv. And then when the war is over, they come, they come back in. But that's the part of it that made that option never on the table for Israel. Because yeah. the plan was never that they would come back in into a kind of reconstructed Gaza after the war. It was go into the Sinai, and then from there, some of them stay and the rest are dispersed around the world. I also think this is very typical of the U.S. approach and certainly the Biden administration approach to Israel is they may verbally signal some discomfort with this or that Mm -hmm. action, this or that plan, while they are speeding weapons and support and providing diplomatic cover that inevitably leads to Israel effectuating the plans that they are saying out in the public that they are interested in pursuing. So, you know, to me, it fits very much with these elaborate fantasies that the U.S. media and U.S. politicians over decades have really constructed about Israel that, to your point, Ryan, uh, Netanyahu and his government coalition partners have made it very difficult for them to sustain because they are saying the quiet part out loud. And sometimes now, not just in Hebrew, sometimes they are now saying the quiet Mm -hmm. part out loud in English as well. That wasn't the only question that you were able to get into, Matthew Miller, though. You also asked whether they were concerned that the U.S. may be implicated in the genocide charges that Israel is now facing um, due to South Africa's uh, filing at the International Criminal uh, Court of Justice. Let's take a listen to that question as well. To follow up on Turkey, I'm sure you see Turkey has joined South Africa in its uh, charging Israel with genocide before the International Court of Justice. Is there any concern within the State Department that State Department officials could be roped into this, this prosecution? 
Uh, no, I will say that that uh, as it relates to the State Department, we have been committed to addressing the humanitarian situation uh, in Gaza and have made a priority of preventing, as we I just said in your in response to your question, the displacement of Palestinians. Uh, I will also say though that genocide is, of course, a heinous atrocity. Um, one of the most heinous atrocities that any individual can commit. Uh, those are allegations that should not ma be made lightly. And as it as pertains to the United States, we are not seeing any acts that constitute genocide. And, and finally, over the break, uh, top authorities in the Armenian quarter expressed deep concern uh, that the Israeli government was using the conflict in Gaza to push out a lot of Armenian Christians from the Armenian court, uh, quarter. Any a response? So no specific response to that, but as we have said um, on a, a number of occasions, um, we do not want to see the government of Israel take any steps that would uh, escalate tensions. South Africa's filed this 84-page lawsuit against Israel, accusing them of genocide. Israel says that this is blood libel. Does Washington agree? And where does this put Washington and Pretoria? We find this uh, submission meritless, counterproductive, and uh, completely without any basis in fact whatsoever. So we had there, of course, uh, John Kirby also responding to a similar question. And I mean, they're ba both basically giving the same answer. Kirby does a little more aggressively. But what did you make of Matt Miller's response there in particular that, oh, we're not seeing anything that constitutes genocide or would raise questions about and, that? And also, I thought it was interesting that he started by saying, look, we've been very ag aggressive in trying to resolve the humanitarian crisis. Mm. Saying, like, that, like, if you're going to start prosecuting people, let's be clear that we tried to make it less bad mm. than it is. Now, at the same time, they're sending weapons the entire time. Right. Where, so, which is his answer is, sort of accepts the premise that there's a, ser there's a serious problem. prosecution here. Yeah. Whereas Kirby consistently has been kind of off the wall in, in, his, in how aggressive he is in responding. Very true. Calling them, you guys heard it, meritless, meritless. Without, without any basis uh, in, in fact, which as uh, Waleed Shahid pointed out on Twitter, was the exact same response that the U.S. had to charges that were brought uh, before the International Court of Justice against the apartheid South African government back in the 1980s. We said the exact same thing then. Absolutely meritless, like this is terrible stuff. Wow. How, how, could they, how could you even uh, contemplate this? It's an 84-page document that, ha that has six full pages of just quotes from Israeli officials, and we'll play a new one in a second if they want to amend their complaint because <laughs> they haven't slowed down their genocide. I'll just pick one at random as I was going through it this morning. Is Israeli Minister of Heritage, uh, Amakai Elihu, he said, the north of the Gaza Strip, more beautiful than ever. Everything is blown up and flattened, simply a pleasure for the eyes. We must talk about the day after. In my mind, we will hand over lots to all those who fought for Gaza over the years and to those evicted from Gush Katif, which is a, a former Israeli settlement. Uh, so he's, he's saying they will hand out land to Israelis in Gaza. It's this beautiful land, a pleasure for his eyes, seeing everything blown up and flattened. For Kirby to say that a document that includes so many quotes like this which is coupled with what we're seeing on the ground. To, to, for him to say it's meritless is like beyond absurd. Well, and you had the president of the United States himself describing the bombing campaign as indiscriminate. indiscriminate. Which right. is a war crime. Right. So uh, to say it's you know without any basis, well, that is in direct contradiction right. to what the president himself has indicated with his comments. 
And um, to your point, Ryan, one of you and Emily sat down with, um, I'm forgetting his Paul name. Bigger. No, yeah. the uh, Holocaust scholar. Oh, who, uh, Roz Siegel. Yes, yes, who said this is a textbook case of genocide. And one of the things that he pointed to was, listen, usually in these cases, as it's ongoing, the hardest part to prove is intent. Mm-hmm. So you can see the actions. You can see what's unfolding. You can make some you know, real educated guesses about what the end goals are. But to actually suss down, okay, do they have genocidal intent can be very difficult in real time. Not so here right. when you have everyone from Netanyahu down openly making genocidal comments, calling for the absolute destruction of Gaza. Yoav Gallant saying you're dealing with human animals. That's why we have to impose a complete siege. I mean, this is totally out in the open. And so to have pages and pages and pages of high-level government officials and high-level military officials laying out exactly what they plan to do makes this incredibly unique. And as you were mentioning, we have, uh, this is just the latest of many that you could pick of an Israeli lawmaker from the Likud party, that is Netanyahu's party, calling for the annihilation of all Gazans. Let's put this up and I can read the, the subtitles as he speaks, as it's clear to everyone today that the right wing is right in the matter of politics, in the matter of politicians. Today, it's uh, Palestinians. Today, it's simple. You go everywhere and they tell them to destroy them. My friends at the attorney office who fought with me in the political issues in the debates, it is clear that you have to destroy All the Gazans, these are words that I have not heard, saying, listen, they used to not say it. Now everybody's like, yeah, you've got to destroy all of the Gazans. And, you know, the Israeli uh, public is in the grip of basically like a uh, genocidal craze. Because if you look at the polling, I would love to say, like, these are outliers and this doesn't represent the Israeli public. But the reality is the overwhelming majority at least are in favor of pushing Palestinians out of the Gaza Strip. They're at least in favor of ethnic cleansing. And then the farther right are out there, you know, actively saying, hey, what if we nuke Gaza? How about we destroy all of it? How about all of Gazans are annihilated? Right. We, 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 we flatten it. It's, it's beautiful. We take lots and give it to the people that used to be settlers there. And you and I both lived through the post 9-11 period here in the United States. So it's not that hard for us to kind of put ourselves in that place. Not at all. Yeah. If if you weren't if you weren't kind of conscious at that time, it's hard to describe just how bloodthirsty the American public was. So this is not unique to the Israeli public. That's right. And people right after October seventh kept describing it as 15 9-11s, which at the time there was some eye rolling, but if you take the feeling that people had on 9-12 here in the United States and multiply it by 15. You can imagine how you would get the public sentiment that, you know what, we're just not gonna live by the near, next to these two million people. We're not gonna, and, and we're, this will get to our Treat of Parsi uh, segment later, we're not gonna live anywhere near Hezbollah either. But we're also not gonna leave. So that the only other option is you're, you're going to displace you know, millions of people, not just not just Hamas, because you had John Kirby saying for years, if, uh, for months, if Hamas surrenders, this is over. You now have the Israeli government officials making very clear Hamas could surrender today. And right. they would not accomplish their stated objective, which is to clear out the Gazan population. I think that's a really important point. And this is another one of the, you know, fantasies that's been constructed and propped up by U.S. politicians, by Western media, is that, you know, this um, military action in Gaza, the all-out assault on Gaza, is about, quote-unquote, hunting for Hamas. Well, that's just not 
true because if that was your actual goal, if your actual goal was eradicating Hamas, this is, and this is what military experts will tell you, this is not the way to do it at all. And we have now reporting saying, no, actually, the, uh, the goal here is destruction. We see the plans that have come out saying, look, we want to push people out in the north, and then we want to make it unlivable in the south, and we want to ultimately push them out. We also know the political demands of Netanyahu, who wants to hold on to power for as long as possible, which incentivizes him to, you know, sort of like quench the thirst for revenge that is widespread throughout the Israeli population, and to extend the war as long as possible because he's been able to push off the questions about his own failures that led to, you know, missing all of the intelligence, ignoring all of the intelligence, relocating IDF soldiers away from the area that was attacked on October 7th. He's been able to push those questions off and delay them until after the war is over. So he has every incentive to keep this thing going. But it's very clear that the way that the war has been waged on Gaza is not aimed at, quote unquote, hunting for Hamas. It's much more about destroying the entirety of the Gaza Strip and then putting a choice to the U.S. primarily of basically like, okay, well, people can't live here anymore. It's uninhabitable. Mm -hmm. So what are you going to do now? Right. And international legal experts who've been, who have studied this case and, and who have participated in previous uh, genocide cases brought before the court think that this has a real chance of prevailing. Uh, which which brings us to the comments from the, the French ambassador to the United Nations, who has said that they will respect the decision no matter what, because the, the court's mandate depends on international legitimacy. Yeah. Uh, as Andrew Jackson said about the Supreme Court, you know, they made their ruling, now let them enforce it. Hmm. So it's the question is, what happens? You know, the first question is, do they get a conviction? Right. But then after a conviction, who enforces it? What mandate does it have to have actual teeth? And for somebody like the French to come forward and say, we're going to respect this decision no matter what, uh, is, is significant. Do we have that as a side? We do. Yeah, let's take a listen, guys. There will be legal implications uh, if, uh, um, um, if the international law is violated by one side, by all sides. Uh, it's pretty clear that uh, uh, there have been a, a violation of international law by uh, different sides. If you look at the, this file from the very beginning, and uh, we'll see what the consequences will be. As you just said, the International Court of Justice has been uh, seized of the matter. So I will not comment on this one. You know, France is a strong supporter of the ICJ. Uh, we'll see what they decide to, to, to on this matter, and uh, we'll make sure that... Uh, will support the, the outcome of the decision. But I will not, uh, I, I, the same with the ICC and uh, the decision by ICC, we are a strong supporter of international justice, whether it's uh, criminal justice with ICC, whether it's uh, ICJ for international law. And we certainly don't want uh, the, we, will, we won't certainly encroach their, their, their mandates. So. Do you think that Israel is taking this proceeding seriously? I know you and Emily covered yesterday, mm -hmm. or at least I think you did, that Israel did, is apparently yes. interested in Alan Dershowitz representing them, which, you know, from our perspective, maybe like, maybe they're not taking this seriously, but actually the fact that they're thinking about who they would appoint to represent them indicates that they're not just brushing this aside as a nothing burger. Israel and the U.S. have uh, both been among the most vocal kind of detractors of any kind of international court 
of justice or international criminal court. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not alone, but th- they're the leading kind of voices against this this sort of uh, international approach to justice. But to see Israel kind of float Dershowitz and to see Der- Dershowitz decline to comment on it, we're going to get to Dershowitz later in the show, of course. Yeah. Uh, I was interesting. It You couldn't tell if it's making a mockery of the whole thing because Dershowitz is kind of mockable at this point. Right. But on the other hand, on a, in a lot of circles, he's still Alan Dershowitz, you know, the, the great lawyer uh, who got Klaus Van Buren off to t- me, decades ago. It, it almost was a very Trumpian move because, you know, Trump loves to find these lawyers who are, are admin, people for his administration. And Dershowitz himself. Who, right, who <laughs> it's like, you know, oh, I saw him on cable news and they were really, like, bombastic and held their own on cable news. So that's who I want in my corner. And so to me, it was this very sort of like, you know, Trumpian reach for who was the right character to vociferously defend them in this um, in this case, which obviously he would vociferously defend them, whether it is uh, whether his arguments have merit or not. But I think they have to take it seriously because before October 7th, the boycott divestment sanctions movement was gaining steam around the world. This is a nonviolent approach to ending the occupation to try to. Uh, isolate Israel politically to force ch- change, just as happened with South Africa. The number one kind of uh, response to that from Israel and its defenders was that well, this is anti-Semitic. Why are you singling out Israel? Right. So, and you had t- states like Texas and others like straight up banning support of of BDS. If the International Court of Justice finds Israel guilty of genocide, it's very difficult then to tell supporters of BDS that the only reason they're supportive of BDS is because they're anti-Semites. Right. Because they can then point, so well, what about the International Court of Justice? Right. And that, so that that then uh, makes it easier politically for those, for, those forces aligned with Palestinian civil society to isolate Israel politically, which then pressures them to change their behavior. Yeah, and you can already see, I mean, some impact has been had by these charges, even in the fact that, you know, John Kirby and Matthew Miller are having to get asked about it and having to respond and having to make some truly, you know, ridiculous statements in response to that. Um, I wanna go ahead and move on. There's been huge developments in terms of the risks of a broader war. So we're gonna pause for a minute. We're gonna bring in Dr. Trita Parsi and break all of that down for you. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots. 
the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. So as we've been discussing, risks have really been proliferating throughout the Middle East. We had that terrorist attack in Iran yesterday. We've had assassinations in Lebanon. We've, of course, had those Houthi attacks in the Red Sea and the U.S. looking to escalate our response there. So joining us now to break down all of this and what it means, what it could mean, is Dr. Trita Parsi. He's, of course, Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and fantastic friend of the show. Great to see you, sir. Great to see you. Happy New Year. Um, So you had an article that you just posted in The Nation. Let's put this up on the screen. Talking about um, the risks here, you asked the question, will Israel drag the U.S. into another ruinous war? And lay out the case very clearly that, you know, as the U.S. is trying to assemble this coalition to go after the Houthis and figure out how to respond in all these various ways, that Biden has blocked the most clear solution to all of these problems, which is to push for a ceasefire in Gaza. Absolutely. I mean, we have four areas of potential escalation right now. The Lebanese-Israeli border, uh, Iraq and Syria with the militias attacking U.S. troops, the Red Sea because of what the Houthis are doing, and then, of course, a potential direct confrontation between Iran and Israel, particularly if it emerges that the Israelis had a hand in those attacks yesterday, which, of course, at this point, we don't know. Um, The U.S.'s approach, Biden's approach essentially has been to escalate in order to de-escalate, move more troops there, issue threats. There's now very clear threats to the Houthis that they will be attacked if there's an additional attack against the ships. On a very immediate level, Perhaps one can say that is understandable. There needs to be a degree of deterrence. But at the same time, the easiest and fastest way of actually de-escalating this situation is a ceasefire. And we know that for certain. Because during the six days that there was a ceasefire, that's the six days in which the Iraqi militias completely seized all attacks Hmm. on U.S. troops. There were six attacks the day before the ceasefire. But for those six days, nothing. And then they issued warnings on the sixth day of the ceasefire and saying that they will resume attacks if Israel resumes 
bombing Gaza. Even when it comes to the Houthis, there was a significant reduction. Hmm. So we know for certain that at least there's a very significant likelihood of that succeeding, but it appears to be the one option that the Biden administration is the least inclined to pursue, even though it seems to be the most effective. Let's talk about the, the terrorist attack yesterday at the, at the event commemorating uh, Qasem Soleimani. We actually have, uh, we have John Kirby here responding to questions. Matt Miller also uh, said, uh, made similar comments yesterday. Here's Kirby being asked about potential uh, Israeli involvement in this attack. We don't have any more detail in terms of how it happened or who would, might be responsible for it. On your second question, uh, again, I, I would point you um, to uh, to our Israeli partners to talk more about this. The, the, we're, we're again not in a position to uh, confirm the specific reports. I would just tell you uh, that Al Huri uh, was a noted, designated global terrorist, and if he is in fact dead. Nobody should be shedding a tear over his loss. We have no indication at this time at all that Israel was involved in any way whatsoever. No indication, but just to be clear, you don't think, did they support or assist in, in some other way? Uh, I, I would, I'm not going to speak for another nation. I would just tell you that we have no indication that Israel was in any way involved in this. So the, the, his first answer was about the assassination of Al-Ori, Al and, and he says, well, talk to the Israelis about that. Mm. And then with the second one, he says, we have no indication that it was the Israelis. So there is a degree of difference in the kind of response Certainly. there. So take them both. For, it's broadly assumed that Israel was responsible for the killing of the Hamas leader in, in Beirut, and Israel has made very little effort to deny that. When it comes to the attack in, in Iran, Israel does seem to be signaling to allies that they were not responsible. So. Why would they be responsible? Why, why was suspicion on them? And if it wasn't them, who, who would it have been and why? I mean, the suspicion as to why it would be them is, of course, because of the context that mm -hmm. we're in. We had the assassination of the Iranian general in Damascus just about a week ago. Uh, and then you had the assassination of the Hamas officials and, and others. So within this context- and a Hezbollah official? Hezbollah official right. uh, uh, yesterday as well. So uh, given that context and on all of those others, there's clear fingered um, um, uh, indication that there was the Israelis. So it certainly raises suspicions. However, there's no evidence at this point. The evidence that some are putting forward that this is not the modus operandi of the Israelis, etc. I think that's a fair argument, but I think we should also recognize that things have changed after um, Gaza, uh, after the uh, October 7th attacks, mm -hmm. in which um, you know, the Israelis themselves have said that previous red lines, previous um, uh, operations, previous ways of doing things are no longer the case. So I think we need to keep that in mind. Um, there is another possibility, of course, which is that it is the Iranian Mujahideen, the MEK, which is a terrorist organization, was on the EU's, on the Europe, uh, US's terrorist list, got off that list during the Obama administration for political reasons because they were just buying off half of the city mm -hmm. to lobby for them. They were used by the Israelis to conduct assassinations of, Israel, uh, of Iranian mm -hmm. scientists. And this was revealed by the Obama administration itself, hmm. that the Israelis were working mm -hmm. with the MEK. And the Israelis have had a relationship with the MEK for quite some time. Their modus operandi would very much be to do an attack of this kind. So it could also be that it is the MEK potentially with some Israeli dimension. What about ISIS or, or, it could be or ISIS. Sunni element? Or? Yeah, so ISIS uh, in uh, Afghanistan, uh, the Khorasan province, they have attacked Iran 
just in the last three years, more than three, four times. Some of those attacks quite bloody. Nothing like this, mm -hmm. of course. Uh, and there is definitely uh, uh, a likelihood that it could be them as well. Do it would raise a lot. Take credit for those attacks. Though? They do, and on Twitter, there were accounts taking uh, credit for it, but not by that uh, the official um, uh, sources mm -hmm. there. But it's also a very interesting question that will be raised if this was ISIS. There's already all kinds of conspiracy theories in the region asking the question, why did ISIS never attack Israel during all of the period that it was um, uh, active? And it would raise additional questions. During this war in Gaza, they have done nothing. They've said nothing about the war in Gaza, but hmm. then they take the opportunity to attack Iran. So it doesn't necessarily right. mean anything, but it will just add fuel to some of the speculation about all of this. So um, why would Israel potentially want war with Iran? Because I think that would be the other pushback is like, this would be obviously incredibly escalatory. This would be inviting a direct confrontation if Israel did have some hand in this, um, in this terrorist attack. So what would be the potential logic behind it? So that's the question I'm perplexed by, mindful of the fact that for 20 years, the Israelis have done everything they can to get the US to go into mm -hmm. war with Iran. Uh, and, and just remember what happened uh, a couple of years ago when Netanyahu uh, was pressing uh, Donald Trump to attack Iran after the US elections when Trump had lost. And Trump thought that perhaps by starting a war, he would be able to overturn the elections. And he was pushed by Netanyahu to do so, and there were counter pressure from Milley, et cetera. The Israelis have tried to get the United States to go to war with Iran for more than 20 years. They've been pushed back by previous presidents. Even Trump pushed back prior to that specific incident. Uh, and he actually told the Israelis, if you think this is a good idea, you should go ahead and do it on your own. <laughs> and did not want to have part of it. Obama pushed back against this. Now the Israelis find themselves with the most deferential president that I can remember mm -hmm. when it comes to Israeli uh, uh, military strategies and, and objectives. And they may just believe that this is the one opportunity they have waited for. Netanyahu in particular, who was in charge back then when they were trying to start a war with Iran. And, and the way the Israelis wanted to start a war is that they would do something, but they would drag the US into it. Given how Biden has gone, gone along with almost everything Israel has done right now, it wouldn't be inconceivable that the Israelis would think that this is the best opportunity they have yet. Is it evidence that they were behind it? No. But as to the question, is there a potential motive? Clearly there is. But to, to set aside mm -hmm. the attack inside Iran, uh, you still have the Hezbollah assassination, uh, the Iranian IRGC general in Syria getting assassinated, and then also then the Hamas official in Beirut. Mm -hmm. So there's clear evidence that they're certainly not opposed to an escalation. Oh. So let's, let's, uh, let's say that they get what they want, mm -hmm. that they get the escalation, that now there's a direct confrontation. Uh, do you think that they're correct that the U.S. goes along with them? Depends on how it happens. I think if you have assassinations that then uh, begets a strong response by Hezbollah or by Iran with another attack on Israel with a lot of civilian deaths, then I think once again, you would find Biden in, Biden in a situation that he would strongly support 
the Israeli war effort, which originally, at least initially, will be military support, other types of support. The question is, will it eventually drag the U.S. into the war itself? Because once that happens, I mean, already the U.S. is very much, I mean, all the weapons that are being used in Gaza essentially are American weapons. But once that happens, you're going to have additional escalation risk because you already have all of these attacks on U.S. troops and bases by Iraqi and Syrian militias. At one point, one of them will be successful in mm-hmm. that scenario. At that point, the U.S. will respond. I mean, the attack- They injured somebody yeah, pretty recently, right? Exactly, just yesterday or, or a couple of hours ago, there was one uh, in Iraq and, and the Iraqis are pointing the finger either at the U.S. or at Israel. Um, Next time when some American soldiers are dead, the U.S. is going to respond even stronger and it's just going to escalate mm-hmm. further. I think we should remember one thing. It's been, we've been lucky that it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, that's On October true. 26th, there was an attack by an Iraqi militia against the Erbil base in northern um, Iraq. It managed to get through all of the American air defenses, 5 a.m. in the morning. It hit the barracks on the second floor where American soldiers were sleeping by pure luck. The explosives did not work and the drone did not explode. Had it exploded, the U.S. most likely would have retaliated very strongly, killed a very large number of militiamen, which would probably have gotten another uh, response by them, and we would be at war. And we all know the way that the media pushes. We already see the voices, um, you know, hawkish voices, both on the right and in the Democratic Party pushing in this direction. I also wanted to get your reaction to some uh, news that's developing with regard to the Houthis. Put this up on the screen from the Wall Street Journal. This is A9, guys. Uh, U.S. allies give Houthis ultimatum, stop ship attacks or face consequences. This report says that um, U.S., Britain, and key allies issued what officials described as a final warning to the Houthi Yemeni rebel group Wednesday to cease its attacks on international shipping in the Red Sea or bear the consequences. They go on to say that the U.S. military has prepared options to strike the Iran-backed rebel group, according to U.S. officials. What are the risks attendant to this strategy? Massive risk. I think, first of all, I think it's important to keep in mind this is the U.K. and the U.S., Major other countries, France, Italy, Spain, have pulled out of this coalition precisely because of a desire not to get dragged into war. I think some of them were also fearing that they were used as bait. Mm. Looks like Bahrain is the only Middle East. Mighty country. Bahrain is yeah. it. So yeah. uh, that tells you something. Uh, and incidentally, Micronesia took a pass. Yeah. <laughs> and incidentally, they got our back elsewhere. Yeah. There, don't worry. This is supposed to be a neighborhood watch, watching the neighborhood, and the neighborhood mm. is the Red Sea. There's no countries from the neighborhood in the neighborhood Mm. watch, right? Yeah. So, um, but the escalation risk is there very significant. The Houthis have capabilities, ballistic missiles, et cetera. Um, And one of the things that they might do, which would be very dangerous, and it would also be uh, destabilizing for the region as a whole, they may start targeting the UAE and Saudi Arabia as a way of pressuring the US. That could potentially then cause a breakdown of the Iranian-Saudi normalization which actually has helped stabilize a lot of different areas in the region right now. If that falls apart, we might be in a much, much worse situation than we're right now. So this is, and and that's beyond the escalation risk of the U.S. getting further dragged into the war, of course. This is, again, very dangerous, and it goes back to what we talked about earlier on. There is a much safer, faster, more effective way of preventing this escalation. And and that is actually to have a ceasefire in Gaza. Let me just add one point on that. It raises the question again and again, what is it? What is the U.S. interest in continued bombardment of Gaza yeah. that is of such value 
that Biden is willing to risk all of these escalatory cycles. And on top of that, according to the Democrats themselves, they say that the elections in this year is gonna be about the survival of American democracy. Mm -hmm. And the polls clearly show that Biden is destroying his winning coalition, particularly because of how he's pushing away the Gen Z. So he's not only risking his reelection, he's not only risking war, according to him himself, he's also risking American democracy. For what? What is the American interest in continued bombardment in Gaza that makes all of this worthwhile? Mm. Well, that, that's actually what I wanted to ask you because it's also in contradiction with the reports of Biden's own strategy. You keep hearing that Blinken and Biden and others are telling them by the new year, this has got to be done. Like you don't, what, what, did, uh, what did Blinken say? You don't have that much runway. Like you don't have that much credit. I think. Yeah. Like because when they said they wanted to go for you know months, you know, it, it has to be over by now. So the, even they think this needs to end. They have the power to end it. They it is causing do. all of these risks to everything yeah. that they stand for, yeah. yet they're carrying on simply so that starvation and bombing can continue. And to what end? Do you have an answer to that question? Or we I don't. The only thing I think we can say is that earlier assessments, uh, which treated Biden as if he was not entirely on board with the Israeli strategy, mm. uh, but he was trying to build credibility with them with a bear hug um, or show support so that he at some point could be able to rein them back. I just don't think that has proven to be true because it seems much more likely that he actually signed on to the Israeli objective of the elimination of Hamas. He wanted to see Israel do to Hamas what the United States could not do to the Taliban. Knowing the lessons from that lesson, he never, uh, the lessons from that story, he nevertheless supported this. Mm. And I think that much better explains why he's been so obstinate about preventing a ceasefire yeah. and thinking that he's actually still building up cachet and credibility to at one point later on push for it. Yeah, at this point, you have mm. to view that as absurd. I mean, it seems to me as almost just like purely ideological and not based on a a current analysis of American interests, let alone humanitarianism. Um, on that that last point that you both referred to, there is this argument out there of like, oh, you all act like the U.S. could just push a button, this would all be over, and really they're their own country, and you know, even if we were opposed to it, they would continue and do what they want to do. You know, what is your response to that? Does the U.S. really have um, significant leverage in this situation? Of course, it does. It's an absurd notion to say that the U.S. doesn't. I mean, we have that Israeli major general who just admitted it last week, uh, last month, saying that all these weapons are coming from the U.S. If the U.S. cuts off the tap, we can't fight, period. Um, so it's very clear. I mean, Biden has shipped 10,000 tons of weapons and ammunition to Israel since the beginning of this war. The Israelis need this to continue, particularly mindful of the pace and quantity of bombardments that they're raining down on Gaza, which far exceeds what the U.S. did in Mosul, uh, for instance, against ISIS. But he also raises the other question. If it is so, let's assume for a second that the United States doesn't have that leverage. Okay, then why are we sending these weapons? You can say that the U.S. doesn't have the leverage to stop it. Why are we fueling it? Answer that question then. If it is so that we cannot stop it, fine, perhaps we can't. But why are we fueling it? Why are we sending more weapons in that case? That's the question that is not being answered. Yeah. Last question for me. Uh, Hassan Nasrallah's speech yesterday, uh, leader of Hezbollah, what did you take away from that? 
I think that speech again showed that there is no desire either in Iran or in Hezbollah to actually have open warfare. There is clearly a war going on between these different sides. But open warfare in which the Israelis would completely invade Lebanon, uh, the Lebanese would use all of their resources and assets against Israel, potentially dragging in the US, uh, is not something that they believe is beneficial to them for a variety of reasons. It's not just because they're weaker militarily, it's also what would it do inside of Lebanon because of its dynamics. The same thing is happening on the Iranian side. Lebanon's or Hezbollah's red line is that you know, essentially an invasion is their red line. That's how they would get involved in a war. Same thing is coming on the Iranian side. They're saying that unless there's an attack on Iranian soil, Iran will stay out of the war. Mm. Now, whether that terrorist attack qualifies as that, you know, there's a gray area there. Uh, it's, it depends on how it is being interpreted. But I think from the very beginning, it's been clear. They're not looking for that open type of a confrontation. They're looking for a more indirect, asymmetric uh, way of uh, conducting this war. Dr. Parsi, thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. It's truly invaluable. Thank you so much for having me. Great to see you. Great to see you. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics, in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here... We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. 
And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bernie Sanders is shifting his tone a bit on the war in Gaza, coming out with a statement calling Netanyahu's war, quote, we can put this up here, illegal, immoral, brutal, and grossly disproportionate. He says Congress must reject any effort to pass $10 billion of unconditional military aid for the right-wing Netanyahu government. Longer statement up there if you want to pause it and read it. Crystal, let's unpack this a little bit. First, the obvious point. Um, He has yet to call for a ceasefire. One of the things that people have always loved about Bernie is his consistency and his stubbornness. <laughs> here, I think it plays here, in the other his, direction, though, His huh? stubbornness, I, I, I'd be surprised if he he goes to his grave never calling for the word ceasefire. He mm-hmm. may, might say the fire should cease, but he's not going to let the left pressure him into saying a ceasefire. He will call the war illegal, grossly disproportionate, immoral, and brutal. But he's just not going to go there and say say those words. Which whatever we're not we're not here to like make Bernie Sanders say magical words because they're not going to actually you know do anything. How significant is this though? Let's say short of calling for a ceasefire, how significant is it for him to call for uh, a bl- blocking the uh, ten billion dollars and to call the war illegal? Because yeah. that's calling for a ceasefire because nobody supports an illegal war. He just right. won't say the he words. He just won't say the words, which is frustrating. I mean, it is frustrating because like, like com- just at this point, really, how many were up, according to Euromed Monitor, and also, over 30,000 One point on that, dead. not me, us, is undermined if it really, if, if your ego won't let you true. go with the us. Very true. That is very yeah. true. I do think, I mean, so it's complicated because on the one hand, you're like, Number one, what took you so freaking long to have this level of upset over what has been clear from day one? I mean, Bernie Sanders is not naive about who Benjamin Netanyahu is. He's not naive about what the current Israeli government is or about really what successive Israeli governments have been moving towards for decades Mm -hmm. now because I also don't want to give the impression that Netanyahu is some outlier in Israeli society right now. He's not. I mean, if anything, in Israeli society, he is kind of a moderate, which is terrifying. Um, His government, however, is the most extreme in history. Bernie is not ignorant of any of these facts. So it was always clear from day one that the response was going to be a horror. And the statements that were made from the Israeli government, in case you were in any doubt, you could just listen to their own comments. You know, the siege, the complete medieval siege, denying millions of people food, water, medical care, fuel, etc. That was announced as official government policy. So to not see it for what it was from day one was preposterous. Then, of course, you have the specter of you know, somewhere around, the numbers vary a little bit, but around 80% of the deaths being innocent civilians, which also was incredibly predictable in a densely populated enclave where a majority of people are kids. Um, So, you know, that was not surprising either, but for it to have taken this long to even put out this statement is immensely frustrating. However, you want to say, okay, good, 
I'm glad you finally are seeing it at least somewhat like what the overwhelming majority of the world and certainly the overwhelming majority of your supporters, the way that they see this thing. And I do think it's significant because um, he is a United States senator and, you know, an individual senator, as you know, you know, better than I do, has a significant amount of power. You now have a situation where the Biden administration is trying to put together these three pieces, Ukraine aid, border funding and um, additional aid to uh, Israel. And the ideas in the new year when, you know, when Congress comes back, that this is going to be a top priority. And so if you have Bernie Sanders really trying to muck up the works on that whole thing and taking an adamant stance against it, yeah, I do think that that actually does have some significance. Yeah. It's been a real drag on the uh, anti-war push to have to drag the most left-wing senator to this position. And I, I think, mean, on APAC. Yeah. Right. That were like, look at Bernie right. Sanders making a- the case against a ceasefire, yeah. which was grotesque, which was grotesque to see. Yeah, and your point, uh, your your point to sing, single out his uh, use of the word, the phrase, the kind of the right wing Netanyahu government as a way to kind of distance the the entire project from this, and to try to pin it on Netanyahu, uh, I think is is relevant here, and to show how far. He had to travel. There's a, there was a clip from early November where he was uh, on cable television and was asked about a ceasefire. Let, let's roll this and then unpack it. I want to just clarify one thing, Senator, if I might. You support a humanitarian pause in Gaza. Some of your fellow progressives say that there should be a full-on ceasefire, which would require an agreement on both sides to halt the fighting. Do you support a ceasefire? And if not, why not? Well, I don't know how you can have a ceasefire, permanent ceasefire, with an organization like Hamas, which is dedicated to turmoil and chaos and destroying the state of Israel. And I think what the Arab countries in the region understand that Hamas has got to go. Right. So that's almost that's two months ago. Yeah. Uh, at this point, what what I found so interesting about that response uh, from him is that a kind of left-wing senator analysis of that same situation would say, okay, yes, sure, yes, Hamas is you know, founded with genocidal intent towards Israel, but Hamas and the occupation are mutually reinforcing kind of dysfunctional elements. You could just as easily and, and, and kind of more persuasively say yes. that how can you ever have a permanent ceasefire with one party occupi- militarily occupying another party? Like that, that's not, that is, there's, there's, that's, that's not a ceasefire. And even if the occupation doesn't involve kind of shooting civilians for a period of several hours or several days, an occupation is still done by force. And, you know, there had been, you know, hundreds of civilians killed just in the West Bank. That's right. Before October 7th. That's right. And Those so, get ignored, you know, though, in this whole ceasefire conversation. Right. You, you keep hearing APAC in particular say uh, one of their big talking points is there was a, there was a ceasefire on October 6th. No, there, there's been an, uh, an ongoing war, which involves an occupation. That's not a ceasefire. To make it entirely clear, the greatest threat to Hamas and the greatest threat to Israeli extremists is de-escalation and peace. That is the greatest threat to Hamas. And that's not theoretical. When you look at uh, polling of Palestinians throughout history, when there was some peaceful process to be engaged with, where there was some reasonable hope and expectation that it would result in some kind of a settlement, not even what I would call a just settlement, but some kind of a settlement, support for groups like Hamas, armed resistance groups like Hamas, 
decreases. When those pathways are all closed, guess what? Support for violence increases. And we're seeing it right now. I mean, this idea that, oh, by inflicting a shock on the civilian population, they're going to turn on Hamas and that's how we're going to get them. It's preposterous. This has literally never happened in history that bombing the hell out of a civilian population causes them to turn on whoever there is governing them. Right. No, it causes them to be hardened in their actual support, to rally around the flag. This is what we saw in the uh, bombings in uh, Britain during the World War II. This is what we saw in the Allied bombings of Dresden and other places in Germany in World War II. We have seen this throughout history. So it's a, a preposterous idea. And, you know, I don't know. I don't want to psychoanalyze Bernie. It seems to me that, and this is not to make excuses either, He's like a product of his generation on this. Because if you look at the polling, you know, the older you are, the more likely you are to see things through this binary of Israel's good and the Palestinians are bad and that's that. And so it just seems to me like he has been incredibly corrupted by the propaganda that he has been exposed to throughout his life and is much more similar to his own generational cohort than he is to the younger base that, you know, overwhelmingly supports him and most of his ideas. Yeah. And your point that peace is the real risk to these extremists, both in the Israeli government and Hamas, is, is so important and needs to be underscored. There have been idiots uh, within kind of Hamas uh, who thought that violent attacks against Israeli civilians would cause the Israeli public to turn against the occupation. Like that was, there were, there were people who made that, that argument. Absurd, right. immoral, unethical, disgusting, like gross, and also tactically incorrect. Like it, it, it unifies the country. We've seen it before though. Uh, when, when the ANC was launching kind of terror attacks against the apartheid South African government, the, the white Afrikaners said, if we give in to the ANC, if we give in to these terror attacks, then all the black people are going to organize through ANC and kill all the white people in South Africa. But instead, after apartheid was torn down, the, the violent militant wing of the ANC had no reason to exist anymore and just faded and just faded away. The IRA uh, was, was told the same thing, that if we give in to the IRA, uh, that they're gonna just, they're gonna take out violent retribution against uh, the British because of, because of what the British have been doing for thousands of years to the Irish. You know, the, the depth of the hatred between, you know, both religious and eth ethnic uh, is so deep that it's gonna lead to endless violence if, unless we, so we just have to keep our boot on the neck of the IRA. Soon as uh, the war ends and, and there's dignity and peace, yeah. the, IR, the reason to be in the militant wing of Sinn Féin like, just evaporates. Yeah. And you have some splinter groups that just are defined by their need to be violent, but that they're just tiny little elements um, that, that fade away and within a couple generations that they're completely gone. Uh, and also people age out. Like that's the other thing people don't understand. Like participating in that sort of violence is a, is a thing you do in your teens and 20s for the most part. And that, you know, if, if you can get to a place where you can just live a normal life, that's what most people want. And that's, that's why you don't have bombings in Dublin anymore or in South Africa. And to ignore that analysis is to make the case, which unfortunately many do, that Arabs, Palestinians, Muslims, are somehow different. Just inherently violent. They're just, just inherently, barbaric, it's, right. you know, yes, it's in their DNA, which right. is obviously a 
a wrong and blatantly racist view, which again, unfortunately, is all too common and pervades so much of the thinking on this conflict and is how, you know, the news media is typically able to get away with these completely dehumanizing statements about Palestinians, the coverage of Palestinian atrocities, how, you know, we just had one of the deadliest attacks, which is really saying something in all of this war. I think there were uh, roughly 200 Palestinians killed in this one attack in Gaza. You you may not have even heard about Mm -hmm. it. It was a footnote. Yeah. Imagine if that was Israelis. Imagine if it was any, you know, Europeans. Imagine if it was here, God forbid. Um, this would be front page news for months and months and months and justify apparently all sorts of atrocities being committed. But since it's Palestinians, it's barely a blip on the radar. Right. And there are two million Arab Israeli uh, civilians. Um, and they're not blowing things up all over the place. Like there's nothing inherent in being Arab. That's a great point. They're, they're yeah. the same people. It's, it's the oppression. Right, yeah. It's just, just hap- they live on different sides of the fence. Yeah, that is such a great point. The political fallout certainly continues for Joe Biden over his response here. Ryan, why don't you break down some of the latest polling for us? Not looking good. You put up this uh, <laughs> first one. So you, you several months ago, you started seeing polls showing uh, Biden losing vote share among uh, young people and among Hispanics. Um, and originally it would it would kick off days of kind of discourse online about how the polling must be com- completely wrong. We've seen so much of it now. We they ha- People just have to start taking it seriously. Uh, so this poll from The Independent has Trump leading Biden among Hispanic voters, an absolutely in- incredible collapse for Biden. Uh, this has Trump up 39, 34. Uh, even if you consider this to be something of an outlier, it's directionally uh, in in the same direction as as other polls you've seen, I think Biden won some, you know close to two thirds of you know the Hispanic uh, popular uh, voters in 2023. We've also seen Donald Trump leading Joe Biden among young people in this independent poll uh, in, in this poll, 37 to 33. Even if you say, look, this is wrong, uh, how wrong is it? Let's say let's say it's off by 10 points in each direction. Yeah, that still puts Biden only at. 43 still a catastrophe. To, to 27 or something. Like Biden has to win, like he did in 2020, overwhelmingly among young people. He has to run up numbers with uh, Hispanic voters. He has to maintain his uh, margins uh, with, with black voters. Uh, and, and he's not doing any of that. Yeah. But the coalition is coming apart at the seams. It's collapsed. And I mean, it sort of exposes the lie. There's this idea in modern politics that everyone is just like totally partisan and no one changes their Mm -hmm. mind based on events on the ground. Not so, guys. People are changing their mind in real time in a major way. And in the same poll, which was a USA Today Suffolk University poll, they also found that only 63% of black voters support Joe Biden. Now, this is interesting. It's not that black voters are saying, oh, actually, we love Donald Trump. No, Donald Trump is still getting the same 12% of black voters that supported him last time around. However, you have one in five black respondents saying they're going to back a third-party candidate in 2024. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, you know, a similar story with uh, with young people. It's not like they are flocking to Donald Trump. It's that they're looking around and saying, you know what? I just— I can't do this anymore. And it turns out that participating in mass atrocities and, you know, spending our taxpayer dollars to kill babies in the Gaza Strip 
Turns out that has yeah. not only horrific humanitarian consequences and consequences for U.S. interests, it also has some pretty negative consequences for you politically. And you might be asking yourself, do Democrats just want to lose? Well, <laughs> may, maybe, but let's assume for the sake of this conversation that they actually want to win. And then the question is, why on earth would they stand behind a candidate who is getting crushed so badly in the polls when you still have almost a year to go right. before the election? And the answer that I get from Democratic partisans and operatives in Washington is that their wing in a prayer is that those people who are telling pollsters now that they're not supporting Biden, but they're not supporting Trump, when forced, when push comes to shove, because they are being pushed and shoved into the ballot box, that they will come back to Biden and reluctantly cast a ballot for him. What I think that they're not understanding is not only do you have you, maybe Cornell West is on the ballot. Maybe Cornell West is not. RFK Jr. is going to be on the ballot in a lot of places. Um, uh, uh, he's getting a lot of publicity within independent media and podcasts, which uh, are, are uh, places that a lot of working class people get their news from because they're listening to them during, quote, unquote, window time. Yeah. Pro probably most of the people listening to us right now are engaged in some kind of window time. That means, you know, they're, they're, they're driving a truck. They're driving in driving an Uber, they're just driving themselves on a long commute, or they're working construction, they're working in a kitchen, uh, they're, they're working in a hotel, and they, and, they, and they want something to kind of keep their mind off the, the, drear, the boredom of, of the work, so they're listening to these long-form long podcasts. RFK Jr.'s on those. So if he's on the ballot, and you're trying to push uh, these voters who, who have told you that they hate Biden into voting for Biden, they, they might take this, this other choice. And so that, that bet that they're making is the whole reason that they, that, and, and Trump's unpopularity is the whole reason that they're unwilling to consider any kind of alternatives to Biden. It's, a, it's a, just a wild bet. And I don't want to hear anything about, um, you know, from, from those kinds of Democrats about who cares about the, uh, you know, electoral politics. If, right. this, if this is the gamble that they're willing to take with the future of the country. So true. And listen, let's be clear. Trump was also incredibly sycophantic with Israel. RFK Jr. may be the most More hawkish. Than them. Yeah, that's what's maybe crazy. the More most pro-Israel of all of them, yes. judging by my recent conversation with him and many of other comments that he said but voting as isn't well. Necessarily rational. It's it, that's right. He is an alternative. He is a protest vote. And you know, also by the way, I do think that there is something genuinely different between, okay, he's making all of these statements that are incredibly pro-Israel versus he's shipping the weapons. Right. He's blocking the UN resolutions. He's actively participating in these atrocities and running cover right now. Like we see it before our eyes. That just hits a little different than theoretical statements that are being made. Um, and to underscore, I think, what a break there is, especially among young people on this issue, this to me is extraordinary. I don't know, Ryan, you can tell me because you got a better memory than me whether you've ever seen anything like this in presidential oh. politics. Put this up on the screen. Biden's own campaign staffers. 17 of them. 17 Biden for president 2024 campaign staffers just published this uh, anonymous medium post calling him out for his unconditional support, they say, Dear President, we need, Dear President Biden, we need a ceasefire now. We write to you as the current staff 
of your re-election campaign as we work to mobilize voters to cast their ballots for you, we must take a moment to acknowledge our tremendous grief and the grief shared by countless other Americans toward the violence occurring in Gaza. We join this campaign because the values that you and we share are ones worth fighting for. Justice, empathy, and our belief in the dignity of human life is the backbone of the Democratic Party, they claim, but of the country. However, your administration's response to Israel's indiscriminate bombing, a carefully chosen word, because that's what Mm -hmm. Biden himself said, in Gaza, has been fundamentally antithetical to those values, and we believe it could cost you the 2024 election. They go on to list a series of actions that they would like to see him take, but I don't know that I've ever seen a campaign staff, presidential campaign staff, come out in this organized fashion and say, you have to stop this. You have to change. Now, they, they didn't put their names on it, which has been a habit and a pattern in, in a lot of these uh, staff letters that have circulated, but it was published by Politico's kind of West Wing playbook, which is, as the name suggests, read very closely in the yeah. West Wing. And so they very deliberately targeted it to um, to make sure that everybody inside the White House read it. And those reporters, because we've reported on some of these anonymous letters, you make sure that you're not getting punked by like just some random, it's not some random person DMs you on Twitter and is like, hey, I'm, I'm a campaign. And you're like, all right, prove that you have 17 people. Who are the people? All right, okay, well, now we'll now we'll let this ride. Uh, but yes, I've never seen anything like this. Um, partly, this this is it's new that staff are willing to stand up in in this way. That you know that's kind of a post 2015 2020 thing. Mm. Um, but you've certainly never seen a, a staff of a presidential campaign, and certainly not of an incumbent president, come out uh, come out with this uh, firm of a, a rejection of their own candidate. Yeah. So the Biden team does have a plan uh, to try to combat the collapsing poll numbers that they see. Let's put this up on the screen. They're going to lean into Trump and lean into uh, January 6th. And I mean, listen, I might sneer at this, but let's also be clear. I mean, this kind of worked for them in the midterms Mm -hmm. of like- This is what they've got. Listen, we're not really promising much, but we're not them. And Trump is a maniac and all the people he supports is a maniac. And January 6th was horrendous. And, you know, let's throw in uh, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Again, we're not gonna do anything to reclaim those rights, but we're not gonna further erode them. And in the midterms, and in every basically special election we've had since then, it's been a pretty potent political message. So I can't completely turn up my nose at it or sneer at it. And what's so incredible is that when it comes to codifying Roe v. Wade, they actually could they actually could run on that. Like you you could say because they're they're getting an enormous amount of support in special elections and just a, and around the country from the rejection of the kind of Republican agenda and the successful Republican agenda of overturning Roe v. Wade. Biden could go to voters and say, if you elect me and hold the Senate and give me one or two more people in the House of Representatives, flip the House, we will codify Roe v. Wade into law. You could actually, I know it's a novel idea. You could actually run on something? To like make a promise, (laughs) a pledge of something that you will do, get votes for that thing, and then do that thing like you could you could do that but that seems to be just so far beyond the imaginations of our politicians that they just much rather just say remember how bad january 6 was and also yeah. how you know what a maniac trump is you don't want that so 
vote. So vote for us. Yeah. And I, I do think that, listen, time will tell. They're betting basically. Like, he oh, might win. That's that's what's so crazy. Biden could win. It, absolutely. But it is people should not take from this that it's locked in. No, absolutely. That is certainly the case because people do hate Donald Trump yes. and aren't excited about the chaos that he would bring with another four years um, of him in the White House. But I do think that there is something that has fundamentally broken with regard to the Biden response in Israel uh, with, you know, unconditional support for Israel that they don't seem to have really processed. You know, I think they really feel like, oh, they'll just get over it. Like, they'll move on. And if we don't give them a choice, they'll they'll come back. They'll come back around. And I just— I, I wouldn't bet on that because I do think that this is a kind of like a rock war type breaking point for young people who cannot wrap their heads around the fact that we are so directly complicit in these horrors that they are seeing every day on TikTok and other places um, where it's like, okay, it's this is not just some horror happening in some far off land. Like, we are funding this. We are directly complicit in this. This is happening on our watch with this guy that many of us voted for. And so I do think that it is, you know, a, a different type of this isn't just a like, oh, they'll move on to the next issue of the day. I think this has fundamentally reshaped an entire generation's relationship towards the Democratic Party. Yeah. And I know it'll never happen, but I wanted to get your take on uh, the, the In These Times piece that was out yesterday. Yeah, I saw your comments. Yeah, yeah. so they, they floated Andy Levin for president. Uh, now, it's probably absurd because I have to explain to everybody probably who Andy Levin is. <laughs> he's uh, he's a m- former member of Congress who was basically driven out of office by AIPAC in, yeah. in 2022. He's the scion of the Levin family in Michigan. It's Carl Levin, the son of uh, Sandy Levin, who was the Ways and Means chairman. He'd win Michigan. like He'd, he'd, he'd waltz through uh, Michigan. Uh, he's also a former uh, synagogue president. Okay. Uh, but he had, but he has been very critical of Israel. He calls himself a Zionist, but he's been very critical of Israel for years, and was very, and was very supportive of Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib every time that they were they were attacked. And AIPAC said that the reason they went after him was that he, as a former synagogue president, uh, was giving cover to critics of Israel. He was sort of to, a uniquely powerful and influential to, voice. He's also the, the, he was the most powerful. Uh, and most eloquent kind of pro-labor and pro-union voice in the House. So, I, I mean, I think if you actually did nominate him, he went, AIPAC absolutely loses its mind. He wins Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania with his, uh, with his connections there and with his pro-labor, uh, pro-union record. And he, and he easily beats Donald Trump by 10 points. What, and, and I don't see that as even a controversial thing to say. Right. Yet it's basically impossible to envision it happening, which then raises the question of what is the point of a political party that can't do that, that can't even conceptualize of doing that? Right. I mean, listen, I, I am all for it. <laughs> I am 100 percent on board. Um, but it's not like there haven't been alternatives in the Democratic primary yeah. from the media. You've got Marion Williamson. Right. You've got Dean Phillips. So, you know, if your whole thing is like, oh, she's never been elected office. Well, this is a credentialed fellow um, who, you know, he's not where I am on Israel, but he's been much better than Joe Biden and mm-hmm. has an actual knowledge of the region. He's on the, um, what is he, the chair of the subcommittee on the Middle East 
Um, so he has, you know, he's been to the region. He has some understanding of it. And so there are alternatives, but the Democratic Party has gone out of their way to make sure that it, there are no, not only no not debates. Not even having primaries. They're not even having primaries. That's right. I mean, this news just broke of another state, I believe is North Carolina, that just kicked everybody off the ballot except yeah. Joe Biden. And it's preposterous. It's like um, Saddam Hussein stuff. It yeah. truly, truly is. So you now are up to, I believe it's four or five states that have just said, we're just not even having a primary. Yeah. We're just, Joe Biden, you're the guy, that's it. 100% so, to zero, congratulations. Right, and all in the interest of preserving democracy, of course. Yeah. So, you know, the, you just can't take seriously that they actually believe that democracy is at risk, that Trump is a unique threat, because if he was, yeah, the, you, you're talking about, um, you know, Levin, the fact that he's not that known and he's just sort of like a generic person is a massive asset. Right. Every yes. poll shows that if you just have generic Democrat on the ballot, they beat Trump hands down. It's right. not even close. Well, I've you, got a generic Democrat. Yeah, player. you add to it that he's got, you know, good like populist labor and he's good on the issue of, you know, not just enabling genocide because it's Israel. Uh, and yeah, I think you've got a pretty compelling case there, in my opinion. Mm. But the Biden team does have one thing going That's for them. True. Ryan, this was just... Recently on Fox News, I just had to find an excuse to put this in the show because it's sort of hilarious. For some reason, I don't know why, they brought on a tarot card reader <laughs> to try to tell us about the future of what's going to happen in politics. And they asked her specifically about the coming year for Donald Trump. Let's take a look at what happens. Uh-oh. Oh. <laughs> what is that? I, I mean, I, I, I do recognize that I'm at, I'm at Fox TV. I have <laughs> a sense of loss. The death card she pulls there, and she she tries to come and be like, it just means a loss. Uh-oh. It means a loss. Yes. Dark dark year for <laughs> Donald Trump. Listen, I guess the, the lesson there is literally anything could happen over the course of this year. I think any outcome is on the table. Certainly. Yeah, I mean, if if I were Trump right now, I wouldn't be feeling great either. I wouldn't be feeling great if I were either of these people. No. Yet, yet one of them probably is going to win, and I which is bizarre. And I would not be feeling great if I was uh, an American citizen, which I am. And yeah. I'm not feeling great about yeah. what 2024 is going to bring. Because like I said, I just, I can't, you know, normally like we're political nerds. I get excited for presidential years. The Iowa caucuses are what, less than two weeks away now, which is crazy to me. And it's just like, I cannot envision yeah. a positive scenario unfolding that I would be happy about or that the American people should be happy about this year. And, you know, I don't think I'm an outlier in feeling that way. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots. 
the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. At the same time, we had some big reveals yesterday. This was much anticipated. Unsealing of court documents, uh, revealing some of the uh, depositions with regards to uh, Jeffrey Epstein. We can go ahead and break this down. Let's put this up on the screen. This is from CBS News. Their news article writes, Jeffrey Epstein contact names released by court. Here are key takeaways from those unsealed documents. And let me just give you a little bit of their synopsis and then we can show you some of the specifics. So they say, documents that include the names of more than 100 people connected to Jeffrey Epstein, including business associates and accusers, among others, were made public on Wednesday following a federal judge's December ruling that that information must be unsealed. More than 900 pages of mostly unredacted documents were released. They indicate, and I think this is accurate, much of the information has been previously reported. However, to see the actual specifics is still yeah. quite noteworthy. And um, they mention, uh, this is uh, Virginia Gouffray. This is part of her now-settled defamation lawsuit. That's the context of all of this information and these depositions. Um, she had accused British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell of enabling her abuse by Epstein. And Maxwell, of course, was found guilty back in uh in 2021, gosh, it's been that long now, uh, of enabling that abuse. And so some of the names here, you're not going to be surprised. We've got uh, Britain's Prince Andrew. We've got Bill Clinton. Bubba. We've got Donald Trump. We've got uh, Alan Dershowitz. And we can show uh, some of those details. Let's go ahead and put this first one up on the screen. So this probably was the biggest piece that people were sharing. Let me just read this. This is, again, a part of a deposition. Um, they say, let me back up. Do you know Bill Clinton was a friend of Jeffrey Epstein? Um, this person says, I knew he had dealings with Bill Clinton. I did not know they were friends until I read the Vanity Fair article about them going to Africa together. Question, did Jeffrey ever talk to you about Bill Clinton? Answer, he said one time that Clinton likes them young, referring to girls. Ryan, Gross, what do you make of this? Gross, 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 gross. Yes. Gross. And and this is, uh, the reporting says this is Johanna Stoberg. 
um, one of the Epstein accusers. Uh, just, I mean, not shocking, but just gross. To yeah. See it in print. And and Bill see, comes like, up a number of times. Like this wasn't the only mention of him in these documents either. But this was the sort of uh, most, I guess, damning commentary with regard to him that came up here. Yeah. And you ha- you also had um, people were noticing, for instance, that like Al Gore's name came up in there. But then you get to the part of the document where Al Gore's name is, and you said, uh, "Did anybody ever mention Al Gore?" And the person says, "No." Right. Did they ever mention Tipper Gore? No. So for some people whose names are in there are in there because the lawyer just asked about them. Right. And in and some ways they're sort of like exonerated by the commentary, but then no. just the fact that you came up in yeah. Epstein docs is I'm sure yeah. not a great feel. Gore's got his own situation with that massage thing, if you remember from many, many vaguely, years ago. Vaguely remember that one. What we have next, I believe, is Prince Andrew. Jane Doe number three was forced uh, allegedly to have sexual relationships with this prince when she was a minor in three separate geographical locations, London at Ghislaine Maxwell's apartment, New York, and on Epstein's private island in the U.S. Virgin Islands in an orgy with numerous other underage girls. Epstein instructed Jane Doe number three that she was to give the prince whatever he demanded and required Jane Doe number three to report back to him on the details of that sexual abuse Maxwell facilitated, they say, Prince Andrew's acts of sexual abuse by acting as madam for Epstein, thereby assisting in internationally trafficking Jane Doe number three and numerous other girls. These are the allegations. Another person that comes up here, I don't know if you guys remember this disgusting character, Jean-Luc Brunel, who was like the uh, modeling, what was he, Mm. French modeling agent that was implicated in a lot of this as well. And years ago, I did reporting on uh, Prince Andrew through uh, through the, a fin- financial lens because he got himself involved in all sorts of kind of shady financial dealings. What he would do is he would basically lend the credibility of the crown to like corrupt banking operations mm. and all, all sorts of other things. I didn't and, know that piece. So he was a shady yeah, character all, on all fronts. Yeah, and while I was doing that reporting, I was people would just refer to him by his known nickname at the time, which was a Randy Andy. Uh, So when this news broke, uh, and we've obviously known about this for years at this point, like, oh, Randy Andy, okay, not not exactly the most shocking revelation uh, to people who who have known him for so long. And the the French, like, acting, uh, the French guy, just like like a comic book villain when it comes to, you know, sexual abuse. Well, in the modeling connections with Epstein was reportedly how he was able to, you know, uh, convince these young girls to be right. associated, oh, I can make you a star, basically, type of crap, and held himself out that way with uh, Victoria's right, Secret um, in ways that the company, uh, Lex Wexner was the, the owner, mm-hmm. and he was uh, apparently a big benefactor of uh, Epstein and helped to facilitate his, you know, lavish lifestyle and uh, other underlings at Victoria's Secret were complaining about Epstein yeah. holding himself out as this modeling agent and trying to, you know, persuade young girls it, in various yeah, the, ways. The difference between what happened to these young girls and what happens to so many young girls trying to get into modeling is minuscule. Like, so when he, and, and he actually had the imprimatur of Victoria's Secret in a private plane and uh, access to the people like Bill Clinton and Prince Andrew. So, like, you know, I, I think every uh, young girl who gets into modeling is nervous about, because they've all heard the stories about what's going to happen. Yeah. Then you see a private plane and you see, you know, former presidents and prime ministers involved. At the time, now, 
that might be a red flag. At the time, that puts you a little bit at ease. Yeah, like, like oh, oh, well, these prominent people, these the, certainly these they the most powerful be. people in the world. Yeah. Now, because of the Epstein uh, releases and, and revelations, you might have people like, oh, the most powerful people in the world involved with this, maybe, maybe it's actually pretty dangerous. Yes. So uh, Trump did come up a couple of times. We have both of those. Um, he was a sort of like side character in uh, some of these interactions. Let's put a, this next one up on the screen. So, oh, uh, this is Alan Dershowitz, actually. Sorry. We'll get to Trump in just a minute. So uh, Dershowitz has long been uh, accused of uh, various horrific things with regard to Epstein. They say here that he... Uh, uh, forced Jane Doe number three to have sexual relations with Alan Dershowitz, close friend of Epstein's well-known criminal defense attorney. By the way, Dershowitz helped Epstein get that uh, sweetheart deal that enabled him to, uh, you know, get off basically scot-free previous sex crimes uh, conviction. Epstein required Jane Doe number three to have sexual relations with Dershowitz on numerous occasions while she was a minor, not only in Florida, but also on private planes in New York, New Mexico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And uh, Ryan, we actually have a perfect response from Alan Dershowitz in the wake of these new revelations. Guys, if we can play the response from Dershowitz so people can hear his side of the story. The one point I do want to make is that I understand all the feminist groups and the radicals who think this is the worst thing in the world that anybody ever had any contact with Jeffrey Epstein. Where are all those radical feminists when it comes to the Hamas rapes of young Jewish girls, sexual abuse, beheadings? They are quiet. They are silent. The incredible hypocrisy of the Me Too movement. Me Too, except if you're a Jew. If, uh, and I want to have a list of all the radical feminists who are pushing hard, and I understand that, to get all these names revealed. And I want to know how many of them have ever actually condemned Hamas for the rapes that we now know occurred and the murders that occurred? How many have been silent? And how many, like the National Lawyers Guild, have actually approved of what Hamas did? So making it somehow about Israel, which is kind of perfect. And also, Ryan, the idea that it was just quote-unquote radical feminists who were interested in, you know, exposing the truth of who has been associated Nobody with Jeffrey Epstein. Nobody else cares about a child sex ring, but a so radical So preposterous. Feminist. I mean, this is, in a lot of ways, it codes almost like right-wing interest in Epstein, even though, you know, obviously there's just like a general public disgust and horror at what was unfolding among so many of our nations and our global elites. Um, but to try to pin this like this was some secret feminist cabal that was pushing for the exposure here, and the same feminist cabal who won't condemn Hamas is, I don't know. It's just yeah. absurdities on absurdities. And, and how little respect and how much contempt do you have to have for the victims of October 7th to drag them into your Jeffrey Epstein scandal? So true. Like, what could be more denigrating to their memory than that? St stand on your own two feet and defend your relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Do not bring in the memories of the people who were killed on that day to try to distract from this. It, it's one of the most offensive things I think I've ever seen. Well, and we would be remiss if we didn't uh, remark that 
Many people believe that Epstein, why he so aggressively cultivated all these relationships with rich and powerful people was because he was a uh, foreign agent. And specifically, um, the theory, unconfmed, is that he may have had Mossad connections. There's a lot of reporting to that effect. There, it's there, not, not, it's never proven. It's not purely it's, conjecture. Right. Um, and so, you know, the fact that you've got Alan Dershowitz, who is one of the most vociferous defenders of Israel, who's being floated as representing them at the ICJ, yeah. who also has this Epstein link, many people are taking note of these things, Ryan. Yeah. And Jufre and Dershowitz reached a settlement in which she dropped her allegation, this, this, this allegation, where she said that it was a case of mistaken identity, uh, and, and, and he also dropped his counter-defamation claim against her. And so that, that appears to be the root of what, what, uh, you know, rose here, but yeah, I, I, yes, I think you're right. Yes. All right. Let's, I think we next have Trump. We have the long teased, uh, Trump piece <laughs> of this. So there was apparently a, uh, a trip that went sort of awry. They asked, did you see, uh, her in the plane on the trip to New York engaged in any kind of affectionate or sexual contact with Jeffrey? No. With Ghislaine? No. How did it come to be that you were in a casino in Atlantic City? Well, we were flying. Jeffrey said, why don't you go sit in the cockpit to check out the landing? So we were sitting there and the pilot told me to go back and tell him we can't land in New York and that we're going to have to land in Atlantic City. Jeffrey said, great, we'll call up Trump and we'll go to, I don't recall the name of the casino, but we'll go to the casino. And then they go on to talk about some sort of ID issue. But that's basically like the, Trump's name coming up here of Jeffrey saying like, ah, my good friend Trump will go to his casino. And in another instance, um, they asked, did you ever see Donald Trump at Jeffrey's home? And this person says, not that I can remember on his island. No, not that I can remember in New Mexico. No, not that I can remember in New York. Not that I can remember. All right. And so, uh, you know, in this instance, Donald Trump is sort of not connected at all uh, that in this person's recollection. And, and the, the ID issue is an indication of how young this uh, girl was. The ID question was, well, she's not old enough to be in a casino. What are we going to do? And they eventually... According to that deposition, she was not able to gamble, but they still brought her along on this on this trip. Now, Trump, back in uh, 2002, gave a statement to New York Magazine for a, a profile that they were doing of Epstein, which was supposed to be an, an expose, but didn't fully come together as an expose of what oh, Epstein was doing. Um, he, he wrote, and you can hear Trump kind of dictating this statement to us. He said, uh, I've known Jeff for 15 years. Terrific guy. He's a lot of fun to be with. It is even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side. No doubt about it, Jeffrey enjoys his social life. Now, there's also reporting, to give Trump some credit here, mm -hmm. uh, maybe more than he deserves because of reasons we'll go into in a second, that uh, after Epstein, during the Bush administration, was you know, convicted of, uh, I forget the exact charge, but it was some type of like sexual assault-ish. It was, it was knocked down to a very, you know, low degree, but it was still a sex crime. He was banned from Mar-a-Lago and, and according to uh, reporting that has come out, like he, he, was, he did not associate with Trump kind of after that. Because mm. that's an interesting break in the Epstein saga. Right. After he is a, a sex criminal, like a public sex criminal, tons of this stuff happened after that with these famous people. That's right where everybody kind of would have known that, that this had happened. Now, the reason I say we're giving too, Trump too much credit 
it was it was a Bush administration. It was Acosta, a Bush administration uh, uh, assistant attorney, uh, U.S. attorney, who cut the sweetheart deal uh, with Jeffrey Epstein back back then. He then became Trump's labor secretary. Right. Uh, and then also Epstein died in prison under Trump's watch. So we'll, let's not forget that either. Worth noting as yeah. well. We're um, going with died. Ghislaine Maxwell responding uh, to some of the latest information coming out. This is just too perfect. Put this up on the screen. She's breaking her silence by an attorney saying, playing the woman card here, saying it's all about men abusing women for a long period of time. And it's only one person in jail, a woman. Of course, you know, Epstein was in jail, but he died. Um, died suddenly. Died, <laughs> died suddenly, vaxxed, question mark. Um, but to, to play the the woman card here is utterly preposterous. Like the fact that there has not been full accountability for all the people that clearly there should be full accountability is not to say like you should also get out for, you know, you should also right. face I, the same lack of accountability or to pretend like you weren't integral to these schemes and there's not a very good reason that you were say, serving prison time I think right she's now. I think she's right in the sense that there should be lots of men who are also in jail. Correct. Although she could have done more to facilitate that by testifying against a lot of these men and that is true and going public look Ghislaine that's a great you, point. you, you want more more of these men in jail like start talking start talking send us send us a letter we'll re we'll read it here we'll get these get these prosecutions going yeah but you know she saw what happened to Jeffrey Epstein when he died suddenly um, and so you can you can imagine why you know she, she might be reluctant to take that path Indeed. All right. Um, let's move on to one story I don't want to lose sight of because it's been of a lot of importance to many of you out there, which is the state of the housing market. And Wall Street apparently has a new scheme to further their plans to become America's landlord. Put this up on the screen. Reporting from the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the neighborhood. Wall Street designed it. Big residential property investors are finding it harder to buy in good neighborhoods. So they are building new ones. Um, they opened this piece, I think it's very interesting. Your new suburban rental has granite kitchen countertops built to withstand even the most hard-wearing tenant. The neighbors next door have the exact same laundry machine. Welcome to the community where every detail has been designed to keep costs down for the Wall Street landlord. Um, they indicate big investors are bullish about America's family homes, so bullish they are willing to buy and or build entire new neighborhoods. They were also willing to buy them, but they found that harder to do. So now they're just building them out as it becomes more difficult to purchase houses for the user channels. Interest rates are at multi-year highs. Fewer homes are for sale. Homes are also eye-wateringly expensive. In October, prices hit a fresh record. In October, um, uh, increasingly, Wall Street's solution is to build new neighborhoods of family homes where everybody rents. The model is not completely new. Clustered housing for students and senior citizens has been around. But they say the number of build-to-rent communities is still small, with 900 neighborhoods nationwide, each with an average of 135 to 150 homes, according to a report by the Urban Institute, but the concept is growing fast. The National Association of Home Builders estimates that roughly 10% of new housing construction is destined for build to rent. So on the one hand, Ryan, I suppose it's uh, good that they're moving their gaze from buying up existing neighborhoods mm -hmm. and snatching up the very limited inventory of single family homes that are even available right now. Um, on the other hand, of course, it's very unsettling to imagine these, you know, gigantic companies and permanent capital as your perma landlord. And, yeah. um, you know, it's it's just another indication of the sort of fraying and decaying of the American dream of owning your own house 
which is the way that most Americans are able to achieve some level of stability and basic set, basic um, level of wealth so that they can you know, have a traditional, idealized American middle-class life. Yeah. And we've got to do something about Wall Street buying up all these homes. Like you, you can, the, this, the fabric of this society is stitched together by the thread of the American dream. And you're, and you, and the, the American dream is often as much a dream as it is a reality, mm -hmm. but the dream has to be there. And what Wall Street is doing, uh, even if they're, even if it's exaggerated somewhat, the extent to which they, they have bought up the properties at this point, uh, it undermines people's faith in the future. And so, it's a political issue just waiting to be grabbed by somebody. And you've, I think you just have to get them out of this buying up residential homes business. Like you just have to ban it. And, or if you don't ban it, just make it extremely difficult for them. Yeah. So if they do it, if, if you own more than two or one residential homes, then these are the tax implications for that to make, it, to make them compete against homeowners in a way that is that where actual human beings can outcompete them. Because right now, it's the opposite. Like right now, because they run it as a business, they can write off all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and they have better access to capital than, a, right. than a human being. Right. And so the human being is, is not just poorer, but also is tax disadvantaged in the competition for buying, for buying homes. You've got to flip that. You've got to make human beings tax advantaged against uh, these these corporations and Wall Street that are trying to buy it up. Now, more housing is a good thing. So maybe the deal that you offer them is, all right, we're 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 kicking you out of this scheme where you where you tried to buy up all of this housing. If you want to go out and build a bunch of homes and and rent them, okay, fine. Like that. Like if if the deal is, then you're then you're kicked out of destroying the American dream. Yeah. Because like like is it ideal that Wall Street is your, your landlord because they built some tract homes uh, somewhere. No, it's not ideal. Right. But it's not, it's not the worst either because at least they're building, at least homes are being, are being built. built. And that is a huge problem that we just don't have enough housing. Massive problem. One thing that we've seen is, um, we, we covered this a while back, you know, when you have these large-scale landlords where it's not like mom-and-pop landlords are the most sympathetic right. of characters either. <laughs> Let's be clear. The landlord is just yeah. in general not the most sympathetic of um, figures. But when you have these big national massive companies buying up and renting out huge proportions and taking over the rental market in various locations, they use oftentimes— um, algorithms that they have developed to absolutely maximize their profit, which, of course, they're going to do. That's what they're in mm -hmm. the game to do. But oftentimes, what they've discovered is it actually makes them more money to price people out of the market and charge the absolute max, mm -hmm. even if it means some of your stock is sitting empty. It actually works out for them in the long term to charge those really higher prices than the market will actually bear. The other thing that you find is, oh, it turns out they're not great landlords because 
They cut costs in yeah. every way that they possibly can. So there's all there's these documented instances of tenants having serious issues. We're talking like black mold and pipes exploding, whatever. And they do everything they possibly can to avoid having to pay for those repairs, to avoid yeah. having to do those repairs whatsoever. And, you know, this is the story of a, a modern economy in a lot of senses. Like the more that things become nationalized and go away from the local person that you have to look at at the you know, your kids back to school night or the grocery store or run into in downtown or whatever, the easier it is to make those sort of decisions and feel absolutely nothing about it. Yeah. And, and the risk is that we'll uh, go too long, let them buy up too much market share that then they're too big to fail. And when politicians finally are pressured by people to do something about it now, it's so built, it's so locked in. Yeah. Well, you know, to, uh, to the Democratic Party's credit, they have uh, several proposals of actual legislation that is meant to curb the practices of Wall Street coming in and buying up single-family homes. Um, some of this, you know, is is quite significant. I'm blanking on all of this relevant details right at the moment, but it was, you know, it was pretty significant in terms of curbing the practice. So again, to the earlier discussion, like if Joe Biden wanted to actually run on something, this would be a good you issue. Could, then go. it would put a lot of pressure on Republicans because they talk a big game about, you know, your homeowners and the housing market and, you know, being more populist. But when it came down to it, like they're very much in bed with the developers. Donald Trump is a developer. So for him to, you know, side against like these uh, big Wall Street uh, firms that he's buddies with, it would be, I think it would be very difficult and put him in a tough space. And it's obviously an issue that people care a lot about. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. 
Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Well, what are you looking at today, Crystal? This is the reality of life today in Gaza. Such is the desperation in Gaza. We captured the moment an aid truck of mattresses was mobbed, not far from the crossing where it entered. Fire from Hamas-run security guards frightens the crowd. And not for the first time, there is little law and order. Some people have been injured and killed just trying to get the basics. We'll take you today just for a short tour here. There's barely anything in the markets. Virtually no commercial goods are getting into the strip. About 500 trucks a day used to enter to meet the needs of its people. Their needs are now barely met with only around 100 trucks a day. We are dying of hunger, poverty and everything. There's no shampoo to wash their hair. Look at what's happening to them. They have infections because of dirt and filth. Scenes of horror as humans are reduced to absolute desperation and children go hungry. Yet to Knesset member and Likud party member, Tali Gottlieb, this is right. This is good. It's exactly as it should be. In an impassioned speech, she explained, per Google Translate, without hunger and thirst among the Gazan population, we will not be able to recruit collaborators. We will not be able to recruit intelligence. We will not be able to bribe people with food, drink, medicine in order to obtain intelligence. And we know that finding the abductees is a supreme and super important goal alongside the goals of fighting. Now, to be clear, this is a member of the ruling party actively celebrating and demanding starvation, dehydration, and medical collapse, demanding it continue indefinitely. Obviously, this is heinously immoral. Starving millions of civilians, half of whom are children, as a war tactic is a horror and a very clear war crime. It is unspeakably awful to imagine what these kids and parents are going through right now. I personally can't imagine the pain of a single day where I could not feed my kids, and this has been the daily hell for the 2.2 million residents of Gaza for months now. But it isn't only immoral, it also fails as a war tactic, even if you don't care about wasted kids, babies too weak to nurse, moms too malnourished to produce milk. There is a reason, after all, that Israel has failed to rescue a single hostage. Even if they were actually serious about cultivating collaborators in their hunt for Hamas, they would surge aid to the civilian population, create a rift between Hamas and those civilians by offering a path to peace outside of armed resistance. Give them something to gain by cooperating. Just as in German bombings of Britain and allied bombings of Germany, it turns out terrorizing a civilian population does not win support for those who are inflicting that catastrophic pain. Of course, hunting Hamas is not actually the primary goal of Israel's assault on Gaza. Bibi and his ilk have always found Hamas to be a useful foil and supported them for exactly this reason. October 7th did not change this fundamental dynamic. 
The real goal is retribution, to slake the appetite for destruction, for Bibi to try to cling to power and ultimately to destroy Gaza so that Israel might succeed in convincing its U.S. benefactors that completing their ethnic cleansing by pushing Palestinians into the Sinai Desert or elsewhere is actually a humanitarian option, since their homes, schools, mosques, hospitals, and markets have all been destroyed. In this light, imposing mass starvation on the population makes plenty of sense. Hold them hostage, denying them the basics of life, unless they agree to, quote, voluntary migration, of course. No migration is actually voluntary when you were forced to it by having your house bombed and your children starved. Now, at the beginning of their assault on Gaza, Israel announced they would be imposing a medieval-style siege on the whole area. Defense Minister Yoav Gallant famously now, infamously, I should say, announced, I have ordered a complete siege on the Gaza Strip. There will be no electricity, no food, no fuel. Everything is closed, adding, we are fighting human animals and we are acting accordingly, just in case the genocidal intent was not clear from the actions. Israel, with help from Egypt, has long controlled what goes in and what comes out of the Gaza Strip and used caloric rationing, in other words, hunger, as a method of control. But what has unfolded over the past several months has been something else entirely. A new UN report spells out the incredibly dire situation. Half of Gaza's population is now starving. 90% report they regularly go without eating a single meal in a day. They write that, quote, Gaza risks falling into famine unless access to adequate food, clean water, health, and sanitation services is urgently restored. The entire population, about 2.2 million people, is suffering crisis or worse levels of food insecurity. Food is not readily available. Any food that can be found for sale is outrageously priced and completely unaffordable for nearly all. Going out to search for food means risking your life. Only one out of 25 World Food Program contracted bakeries remains in operation. Israel has raised farmland and destroyed orchards, meaning that even without the threat of bombings, the Strip has no ability to generate its own food. Aid workers have been targeted in Israeli attacks. More have been killed in this war than in any other war in the history of the UN. Isaac Chotner actually just interviewed Arif Hussein. He's chief economist of the UN's World Food Program, and he put the crisis in blunt terms. Quote, I have been doing this for the past two decades. I've been to all kinds of conflicts, all kinds of crises. And for me, this is unprecedented because of one, the magnitude, the scale, the entire population of a particular place. Second, the severity, and third, the speed at which this is happening, at which this has unfolded, is unprecedented. In my life, I've never seen anything like this in terms of severity, in terms of scale, and then in terms of speed. He went on to attempt to put in context how the starvation in Gaza compares to the starvation that is occurring in the rest of the world. He says, if you look globally, worldwide right now, there are about 129,000 people who are in IPC phase five, meaning a catastrophic type of hunger, 129,000. In Gaza, there are 577,000. That means 80% of the people, or four out of five people in famine or a catastrophic type of hunger are in Gaza right now. This is also what makes it unprecedented. Now, according to Tally Gottlieb, who we heard from earlier, this is to be celebrated, to be encouraged. The terror, the hunger pains, the disease that feasts on wasted bodies and compromised immune systems. But make no mistake, although Biden may not come out and say such brazenly horrifying things, he is actually a much bigger monster than Tali Gottlieb. 
by blocking a ceasefire, shipping the weapons that blows up those bakeries, providing Bibi diplomatic cover to continue this assault, Joe Biden is directly architecting this famine, keeping food from the mouths of babies by the hundreds of thousands. I guess at least Tally is being honest in her depraved inhumanity. And Ryan, this is something you have pointed out from the beginning. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics, in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here... We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Thank you guys so much for watching today, Ryan. It was really nice to host the show with yeah. you. I really enjoyed it. This was a first, I think. We I were think trying to so. remember, even yeah. going back to Rising Days, whether we'd ever hosted before, because Ryan usually fills in for me. Um, but we decided to do a little mix and match this week, and I'm glad yeah. glad that we did. A good time.
Yes. Do this again. Indeed. All right, guys. Have a great weekend. We'll have some content posting for you over the weekend as well. And we'll be back with a normal show schedule. And, uh, you know, plans are to have Sagar back in his chair next week as well. So we'll see you then. Actually, not really a good time, but glad we did it anyway. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. See you guys soon. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. right.